3: Hey, thanks again to David McKay for bringing us into our show. And again, for those of you who don't know about our show, Ask the Lawyer, first-time listeners, the show is in two parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part, we do interviews. And I can't really put a finger on what you would call it. I mean, sometimes it's nostalgia. We talk about politics, history, religion. And tonight, we're going to be talking a little bit about history and politics and Norway, because if you live in Brooklyn, tomorrow is the Norwegian Day Parade. Now, Norwegian Day is May 17th, but the parade is on the closest Sunday to May 17th, and it's going to be Norwegian Day tomorrow in Brooklyn. Now, the first part of the show, again, is about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. If you have any questions, you can call us at one 970 9622 970 9622 And we have Pauline from Brooklyn on the phone. Yes, Pauline, what's your question?
4: Yes, I was just curious about this. I have a family member that passed away uh, almost three years ago. She left the will. She had an executor to execute the will, and it's still going through probate. I was told that they hired a genealogist to trace the family tree on both sides right. of the grandparents. Now, is that normal?
3: Well, it's not normal, but if your next of kin are first cousins— Or further, yes, it is normal because one of the problems with probate in New York, everybody who's a next of kin by law has to be officially notified. And the problem is if you don't know who the relatives are or they're missing or you've lost contact with them, then you have to hire a genealogist. It's very painstaking for the genealogist to go through all his searches. And he has to do, you know, the genealogist is honor-bound to do the best job he can because he can't get caught in a stupid mistake or a lie. So it takes years to get through uh, probate when you have missing relatives or unknown relatives or, you know, relatives that you've lost contact with. And and that's the problem if your relatives, especially if they're first cousins or further out. And that's one of the reasons we try to avoid probate, and that's why we talk at our seminars. We want to avoid probate if you're you're next of kin, your relatives are not easily uh, found and will consent to the will.
4: And how do they get paid? I mean, if you, have a, if you don't have a large estate, how do they get paid for them to do that type of work?
3: Well, they're going to charge a fee, and it's up between the executor and the uh, genealogist to work out a deal.
4: Okay, so in other words, there's a way to avoid all of that.
3: If you plan in advance, but not after death.
4: Yeah, because I thought being that you left, a, you had a will, you would avoid that.
3: No, the problem is everybody should have a will, and it's a very important document. But one of the problems about a will is it's not automatic. It has to go to court and has to be approved by a judge. If you live in New York, the judge is called a surrogate. So until the surrogate's court judge approves the will, uh, it, it does not transfer assets. And the problem is in New York, the law is that everybody who's the next of kin has to be officially notified. And the problem is if the relatives are missing, if we don't know who they are, or we know who they are, but they won't cooperate, probate takes a long time. So if you plan in advance, we can avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. Okay, we'll take the next question. I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you have a follow-up?
4: Oh, no, I appreciate that. Thank you.
3: Okay, you're more than welcome. Ben in Brooklyn. Yes, Ben, what's your question? Ben in Brooklyn, up once, up twice? Hey, Mr. Connors, how are oh, you today? hi, fine.
0: I do have a question, though. I'm 41 years old, unmarried, with no children. So I have a lot of family members. I haven't really made any decisions about my estate planning, all because I feel like I'm just too young for it, and probably because it's confusing, and partly because I don't know how, even know how to handle my assets. But I do have my own place, my own co-op. Um, I like it to stay in the family, but... To certain family members or others, of course. And what does avoid probate mean? I'm not even sure what that is all about.
3: Okay, you own a co op right now, right? Yes, I do. Okay. So let's say the stock certificate to the co op is in your name alone.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Is it? It's not joint with someone. It is. It's It's joint with someone. It's only in your name. Okay. So, God forbid you pass away, that asset sits in your name alone would have to go through court. If you have a will, it ordinarily would go to the beneficiaries of the will. But, again, even like with the last question, if, the, if you're next of kin by law and are not cooperative or missing, that takes a long time to get through probate. So to avoid probate, you could put the stock certificate into a trust if the co-op allows it. You avoid going through court. When you pass away, there are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. You go through court. if, When you pass away, there's an asset that is in your name alone, like the stock certificate to a a co-op, like the deed to a house, like a bank account, checking account, in your name alone. In some cases, it could be a car because most people have their cars in his or her name alone. So if there are assets in your name alone, it's going to go through court. If you have a will, it's ordinarily going to go to the beneficiaries. But if you have uncooperative or missing relatives, it could take a very long time. If you don't have a will, the state writes a will for you, and the assets Mm -hmm. in your name alone pass to your next of kin by law. If you're not married and you have no children, your next of kin by law would be your parents or the survivor of your parents. If your parents are gone, it would be your brothers and sisters. If one of your brothers and sisters passes away, it's their children, nephews and nieces. If you have no nephews and nieces or closer relatives, your next of kin by law would be descendants of your grandparents, which would be an uncle, aunt, first cousin, first cousin once removed. If you have brothers and sisters, we don't have to worry about cousins. Even if you have one brother, one sister, we don't have to worry about cousins. If you have children, we don't have to worry about brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah.
3: So That's you should,
0: uh, very good information.
3: You should do a will at the first stop. I mean, I think you said you were 41 years of age. And, you know, a will, I think, is, is enough. You know, usually most of the time if we do a, a trust when somebody's in their late 60s, early 70s, that's usually more than enough time. But if you have somebody out there, especially a relative you trust implicitly, you want to do a power of attorney maybe so that if you have a unexpected illness or something like that, they can help you with your assets, get your planning done to avoid probate. But at your age, 41, if you're in good health, I might just do a will and a power of attorney. And if you want somebody to make medical decisions on your behalf, a health proxy, and leave the trust for 25, 30 years from now.
0: And I can do all that at your office?
3: Oh, yeah, Sure. Where that's do you live? I know you live in point. Brooklyn, but.
0: Right near Prospect Park, not too far.
3: Okay, we're on, you know, Fifth Avenue and 74th Street. Okay. okay All right, Ben, thanks for listening cool. to the show. Now, Beth, you had some comments for some people uh, that didn't quite make it to our seminar. So, what was their question?
5: Well, they came in a little bit late, and they came in in the middle of your description of, of what can happen if, what some of the bad things that can happen if you put someone's name on the deed like your elderly and you put your son or your daughter's name on the deed directly no trust but you just transfer the property to your child and they came in toward the end of some of your examples and they they the example scared them and they were sorry they missed some of them if you can could you run through the reasons not to do it
3: okay well Ordinarily, and I mean there's an exception to every rule, but ordinarily you just don't put your son or daughter's name on your deed or anybody else's name on your deed because too many bad things can happen. It's not like if you put your son's name on a bank account, something bad happens, you go to the bank, you take the money out of the bank. You put your son's name on the deed, something bad happens, you can't take it back. And, you know, every once in a while a parent and child may get in a fight and then the parent regrets the fact that they put their son's name on the deed because they can't do anything about it. But worse things can happen. Your son's married. He dies before you. If you have his name on his deed, his wife probably has a claim on your house, no matter how you word it. It's almost impossible to disinherit a spouse in New York. So do you want to be in partnership with your daughter-in-law? No, and bad things do happen. I mean, one of the problems we have today about people living to such advanced ages is that sometimes they outlive their children. You know, your daughter's married. She's married to a businessman who's taking expenses and deductions off his tax return he shouldn't be taking. Your daughter files a joint return with him. The IRS audits their return. The IRS puts a lien on their assets. The IRS puts a lien on your house. You can't sell a mortgage your house while that IRS lien is in place. And, you know, you can't just change the deed in the middle of the night and nobody's going to know it. The IRS agent in charge of the file can plug your daughter's name into a computer and see every real estate transaction in New York. That involved her name for the last fifty years. Your son's a very reliable man. He's single. He's got the type of job where they take the taxes out of his paycheck. He's driving one day. It's heavy rainstorm. He puts his foot on the brakes. The brakes skid. He hits the back of a school bus. Children are playing in the back of the bus. They shouldn't be playing in the back of the bus, but they're children. They're not responsible. Your son's responsible. He hit the back of the bus. Some of those children are seriously injured. Your son's insurance doesn't cover everything. Those children have a judgment against your son. Those children have a judgment against your house. You put your son's name on your deed. And, of course, the classic story, and I'm going to summarize it quickly, the headline in the Daily News a few years ago, Hit the Bricks, Granny. And woman in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, has a $2 million house. She's 95 years of age. She says, well, I'm not going to live much longer. I'm going to put the house in my daughter's name. So she does that. She puts the house in her daughter's name. Daughter has a simple will. She leaves everything to her son. Daughter dies. Son inherits a $2 million house in Carroll Gardens. Does he want to wait for his grandmother to die before he sells that $2 million house? No. So he can't sell the house with his grandmother living in it. Nobody will buy it. So he starts an eviction proceeding. Hit the bricks, Granny. And, you know, sometimes you look at Yahoo and the the Internet stories and things like that, and it's absolutely frightening as to some of the things that happened. You want to keep control of the situation. You do that with a trust agreement. If you have a trust agreement, if something happens to your son, you can change the beneficiary to your grandchildren, your daughter, whatever. Your daughter gets sued. Maybe we skip her and go to the next generation, her children. But with the trust, you keep control. And no matter what, even if those bad things happen, you're still protected. Nobody can put a lien on your house if it's in a trust because your son got sued or because your daughter has an IRS lien or because your son died before you. Bad things happen out there. And all the examples I just gave you, I'm, I'm never using my imagination. I'm always using my memory. Now, a lot of times I'm combining the facts of four or five different cases into one. Sometimes it's a daughter that dies before the you know, mother. Sometimes it's a son who dies before his father, so forth and so on. But all these things happen. And you can't put your head in the sand. You have to plan things out. And if you want to come into Connors and Sullivan, you're more more than welcome. Uh, you're more than welcome to come in and talk it over. You can schedule an appointment with us at seven one eight two three eight six five hundred seven one eight two three eight six five hundred. We don't charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free, and everything we do as far as estate planning, and elder laws, on a flat fee basis. So you're more than welcome to come. We have offices. In Midtown Manhattan, 110 East 59th Street, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 74th Street and 5th Avenue. We have offices in Bayside, Queens, Middle Village, Queens, and in Staten Island, 1250 Highland Boulevard. Now, on June 14th, we're going to have the Civil War Roundtable meeting, and Chris Bryce, Battlefield Guide, is going to be there, and he's going to be talking about the Petersburg campaign. And the 3 West Club is at 3 West 51st Street. That's right near... St. Patrick's Cathedral, Caddy Corner from St. Patrick's Cathedral, and Beth, can you tell me what is the Three West Club?
5: Well, it's the business part of the uh, the Women's National Republican Club, and um, upcoming tonight, you're going to be talking to Robin Weaver, who is our current president. And um, it's a beautiful club, and it's women that enjoy politics. Yes, it's Republican women, but we have we invite people from all different political parties and the nice thing is we have debates sometimes rigorous but we're not mean to each other which I think is rare these days so it's a beautiful building it's um I it was my choice when we were looking for clubs to join in New York City it's on the National Register of Historic Places and um I would would love, if anybody that wants to come see it, I'll give them a tour. It's absolutely beautiful. And I'm looking forward to Robin's talk with you tonight.
3: Okay, Robin has has a book about interviews, women she's interviewed over the years. So we look forward to that. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I think I just
1: found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit
1: going.
6: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really
1: got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
2: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
5: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church,
1: I'm a new person. I love it.
4: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
1: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. 718 That's 718 And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6.
3: Okay, well, welcome back again to Ask the Lawyer. You know, we were talking about the consequences of putting your son and daughter's name on the deed. Beth, I think you have a follow-up question.
5: Yes, because it is also the tax consequences, and that is the thing that um, confuses people the most. Would you please explain that?
3: Okay. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, you put your son or daughter's name on the deed. You just make a straight gift of the house to them. You're 95 years old. You just put your um, son and daughter's name on the deed. They don't live in the house with you. And living in the house with you may be one of the exceptions occasionally, the exceptions to the rule. But let's say your son or daughter don't live in the house with you. You paid $50,000 for your house 30 years ago. Let's say it's worth a million dollars on the day you're gone. Your children sell the house after you are gone for a million dollars. They go to their accountant to do the taxes. And, of course, I'm simplifying the example. But the accountant says, okay, your parents paid $50,000 for the house 30-some-odd years ago. You sold it for a million dollars. Well, you have a $950,000 capital gain. Now, that hurts that's more than $300,000 in real money. And again, if it was a $500,000 co-op, that's still a $450,000 capital gain. That's way more than $100,000 in taxes. And those taxes can be avoided. Now, if you put your assets in a trust and you control the beneficiaries of the trust until after you're gone, you get what's called a stepped-up basis. Assets step up to their date of death value. So if you paid $50,000 for your house 30 years ago, it's worth a million dollars when you're gone. Your children sell that house for a million dollars. They do not have to pay capital gains taxes. They do not have to pay income taxes. Capital gains are wiped out by death on assets in a trust where, the, let's say, the parent controls the beneficiaries of those assets. Now, at the same time, if you leave your assets through your will, capital gains taxes are wiped out by death. But the problem is if you leave your assets through your will, it's going to go through probate, and like our first caller tonight, Pauline, then it may take years to get through the court system. And one of the other problems about probate, medical providers are very good at looking at probated estates. So they have their computer programs, and they say, okay, John Smith died. He owes $100,000 to our hospital. We put a claim in against this estate. The executor, the administrator of his estate cannot settle that claim except through court. That gives the medical provider the upper hand. And, of course, one of the biggest problems we have today, the cost of nursing homes. The average cost of a nursing home right now in New York City is about $500 a day. You know, some places in Manhattan cost more. Some places in the Rockaways or whatever cost less. But the average cost of a nursing home right now in New York City is about $500 a day. And so let's say for the sake of argument you go to a nursing home. You can't afford to pay that $500 a day nursing home bill. Medicaid in New York will pay that bill for you. But if when you pass away, assuming you're single, and the deed to the house, the stock certificate to the co-op, is in your name alone when you die, well, guess what? Medicaid is going to put a lien on your house for payment of that bill. And that's why a lot of us don't want to go through probate. We don't want our personal residence, our homes, to be sitting ducks for nursing home bills. And that's part of what we do at Connors & Sullivan. We put a plan together. And, you know, sometimes every once in a while somebody asks me a question, I, I, you know, I give them a plan. Well, how's this going to affect my children's taxes? I take it very serious. I do not want your assets after you're gone or while you're alive, I do not want your assets to go to the government. I don't want your children to have to pay more in taxes than they need to pay legally. It's not in my DNA. My DNA is to say, let's save everything for the family. The family can do a better job with your assets than the government. And by the way, I should just mention estate taxes for a minute. There's no estate tax presently in New York under five million one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. The federal amount is five million four hundred and ninety thousand dollars and with the federal government, it's very good because between husband and wife, it's very easy what we call portability if the husband dies, we can leave you know the we can file a return five million four hundred and ninety thousand dollars then gets carried over to his wife, and then she can leave almost $11 million tax-free. And that number's indexed for inflation going up, you know, every year. So, again, there's no one size that fits all. But if you own a house and you want to leave it to your children tax-free and you don't want to go through probate, you want to lose that house to a nursing home, you want to get it out tax-free, free of c- income taxes, capital gains taxes, estate taxes, death taxes, put it in the trust. And we can get that house to the kids tax-free, not paying any income s- Estate taxes probably save the house from nursing home bills unless they do something stupid. And, again, that's what we do at Connors & Sullivan. We do estate planning and elder law. If you get on our website and take a look at the page, you see most of our staff, you know, in the picture. Uh, We can never get everybody there. There's always some, you know, misanthrope or whatever who doesn't quite show up for the picture.
5: They Uh, might be working.
3: Yeah, they might be working or something (laughs) like that. Um, And then somebody might be at a closing and somebody might be uh, on vacation or whatever. But everybody in that picture just works on estate planning and elder law. Now, they may work in certain areas of estate planning and elder law, but they all work on estate planning and elder law. And if you want to come in and talk it over, you, you can plan it out. Our phone number, again, is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, getting back to the Three West Club, on June 14th, Chris Bryce is going to be there again, and he's going to be talking about Petersburg. I think he's going to talk a little bit too about the Appomattox campaign, which is the end you know of the Civil War. And it it was at the end of the Petersburg campaign that uh AP Hill was killed by federal troops. So in the beginning of April.
5: We we're very sad when AP Hill dies.
3: Yeah, but you can see him at the Civil War Roundtable each month, or at least most (laughs) months. I was
5: waiting for that. Yeah. (laughs) He lives again. (laughs) Yes.
3: All right, I guess we'll take another break, and we'll come back, and we're going to be talking to the Norwegian General Consulate of New York, talking about Norwegian Day. Again, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, Norwegian Day was one of the biggest events in in Brooklyn. My father used to have a bar on Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. The two busiest days of the year were St. Patrick's Day. Or Norwegian Day.
5: We have a beautiful crystal vase um, that was given to us by some Norwegians when we first got married with lovebirds, crystal lovebirds in it. Um, They were in the uh, senior citizen choir that I I directed, and I I just loved those people, wonderful people.
3: Okay, and unfortunately, there are not as many Norwegians as there used to be in Bay Ridge, but we still have the parade there, and it's going to go down 3rd Avenue um arlene rotello told us a little bit about the parade it's going to start on sunday may 21st at 1 30 p.m it's going to go along third avenue starting from 81st street and it's going to go to leaf erickson park on 67th street and 7th avenue so i think it's going to make a right turn around 67th street fifth
5: avenue for a while
3: yeah but i think a very short while when i was a kid it was on fifth avenue but now it's on you know and the guys used to come off the viking ships come up in a hurry, you know, (laughs) slam their swords on the bar and say, we want some beer. And, you know, we give them the beer and they went. The
5: Connors Tavern days. (laughs) Yep.
3: We always had the Norwegian flag out there. All right. I guess we'll take a short break, James. We'll be back in a few minutes. We're going to be talking to the Norwegian General Consulate uh, to talk about Norwegian Constitution Day.
6: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
2: Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have a Consul General Officer of Norway for New York, Ellen Rongley. How are you doing today, ma'am?
7: I'm doing very well. And what about you?
3: I'm doing pretty good. Now, when I was a boy growing up in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, the two Biggest celebrations in our part of Brooklyn were March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, and May 17th, which we used to call Norwegian Day. What is the significance of May 17th?
7: Oh, for Norwegians, it's of huge uh, significance. Um, you know, we celebrate it of course every year in in Norway. It's a big, big thing. All communities they engage in this, and and of course when you are not in Norway, you are abroad. It's it might be even more important. So, um, you know, still the parade in Brooklyn, uh, Bay Bridge, uh, is, uh, is
3: very important. But what's the significance of the date? What happened on May 17th?
7: Back uh, many years, 100 years ago, um, we we were a bit back and forth with uh, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and we were in a union with them. So, uh, finally, in 1814, uh, we got for our own constitution. So um, the celebration of 17th of May actually goes back to 1814. Uh, so it's a long tradition. And I have read that in, in the years in the beginning, you know, it was disputed. Somebody didn't want this kind of celebration because from 1814 and until 1905, we were in union with Sweden. So, but this was a, gr- a great uh, issue for us, and of course, after um, 1905, when we uh, we we are uh, we went to be a, um, a, a separate uh, nation, uh, then it's it got even bigger, and it's interesting because it's um, it's still there. If you ever go to Oslo uh, in on 17th of May, it's really really big, and uh, you know, back, all these years, it's been um, so important that it's act, actually a parade for children, and all the schools, they they go in this parade. Um, it's such an important thing to do. We are, of course, off that day in, in Norway. So, uh, you know, it's a celebration because we are a free country. It's peace in our country. We celebrate our society. And these days, it's more and more important that... Specifically in Norway, then, you know, all our new uh, immigrants, they really take part in the celebration. So this is uh, the best day we have when it comes to integration in Norway, and that's that's so beautiful.
3: Just curious, historically, what was the relationship between Norway and Sweden, let's say between 1814 and 1905?
7: Well, I would say it was maybe not the best, <laughs> because we, we wanted really to be, you know, one country Uh, But at the time, you had many different uh, wars in in Europe as well. So uh, it happened that we were, I would think you could say that we were forced to be with Sweden for a while. And then, you know, after a a time, it's actually very interesting sitting here in New York because um, Sweden took care of the foreign policy at the time. And they had, you know, we had one king and he was Swedish. But uh, it was a request. From you know the both the seamen and the shipping that we got our own uh, consular services, uh, and so that was part and the most of the important reason why we really wanted to be uh, one um, nation um, that we had our own foreign service and our own consular service as well. you know we we are a shipping nation, so we had a lot of seamen around the world, and uh, we had to give them the best service we could. And uh, Norwegians are probably the best to do that themselves. So that was actually part of the, the background. So uh, just to add to that, the Norwegian conflict in New York is the oldest, and it's from
3: 1906. Do you have any idea why so many Norwegians settled, let's say, in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn?
7: Yeah, I think that's exactly part of the reason, because we have the seamen, uh, you know, they were close to the harbor area so that it was a natural spot for them. And some of them moved to the coastline, up and down, you know, to Connecticut, New Jersey. But the the people that came to, to Brooklyn, they were uh, mostly um, connected to the sea in one way or the other.
3: Now, when I was a boy, the Norwegian Day Parade was, you know, a very big event. Sometime one year we had Walter Mondale here. Are, are you planning to attend the parade this year?
7: We're just looking into this. We have many things going on. So I know it's uh, it's a jubilee this year, too. It's a 65 uh, years that they have been doing this, so it's a, it's a great event.
3: Now, if somebody wanted to learn more about Norwegian history, where would they go? Where, where's the best place or the best book, in your opinion, about the history of Norway that the public can go see?
7: It's, it's a good question. I think, to be honest, you find... Um, so much good information on on the internet. So I think that's a very good place to go. You have uh, a website that talks specifically about Norwegian history. It's not Wikipedia, but you have others as well.
3: Travel today to Norway. What what would people, if they if they travel today to Norway, what, what do you think they should see? What should they learn?
7: I think it's important, as it is in the U.S., to travel around. Uh, You you should obviously see the capital, Oslo, but you should also go to the coast, you know, um, to Bergen, take the coastal express, for instance, up the coast and see the northern part of Norway. Uh, And I think actually very many Americans do that. And we see so many Americans that go to Norway these days, and they don't only go in in the summer. They actually go during winter to see the northern light, which is beautiful. So it's a lot of nature uh, to see. And, and when, you, when you are in Oslo, Bergen, eventually Toronto, cultural institutions, that uh, should be um, an important part of,
3: of your visit. One question about history. How long has Norway been a country? a nation.
7: Yeah, if you talk about uh you know us as um, one nation not with union with any any other country it's from 1905.
3: But Norway was thought as a, a a nation prior to that.
7: Yes, of course you had uh you know we talk about the vikings and the viking periods from 1800 and up. before that it was not necessarily maybe one one country you had um Harald Hårfagre, who we, we say that in Norway, Harald Fairhair, he was king in 1872, and he actually gathered, uh, you know, Norway into to one country, so that was in 1872.
3: Okay, so I'll we'll have to remember that on May 17th. What, like I said, when I was a boy, we used to call it Norwegian Day, I guess the better... Way to say it is the Norwegian Constitution Day. Sure. We congratulate you. Mm -hmm. We, We congratulate Norwegians, as you know, as a friend of the United States, and hope you'll be back next year to talk about, as we say, Norwegian Day.
8: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to me? Will my
5: assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us
7: take care of grandma? Grandma.
3: With me right now is another attorney, Robin Weaver, who's president of the National Republican Business Women's Club, and she has a new book out. How are you doing today, Robin? I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so what's the name of your book? My book is called Exceptional Women and Their
4: Stories, and it's a collection of interviews with 25 impressive women.
3: How did you get the idea for this book, and and what made you— want to do it, where you got the determination to get it published?
4: Well, uh, I had been interviewing a number of women over, oh, a three- or four-year period. And given the women and the stories they had to share, I thought it would make sense to put the interviews in a collection, which I've done. And I've published it, and I've been doing a number of book events and book launch parties. I've really been enjoying talking about
3: the women in my book. Now, I know one of the people that you have interviewed in your book is Dana Perino.
4: Well, Dana is terrific. I mean, she's obviously doing very well. She began her career doing public relations and was President Bush's press secretary. She's now on a show on Fox called The Five. Talking to Dana was really cool because she had a a lot of interesting stories to talk about uh, in terms of her White House days. She also talked about some volunteer activities that she's involved with, including a program called Mentoring by the Minute, which pairs up experienced professional women with young women who are just beginning their careers. And uh, Dana is very devoted to this. And I think part of the reason she got so interested in doing this was so many young men so many young women were reaching out to her to ask for career advice.
3: Now, I know my wife was very impressed with Amity Schles, who has a book out on Calvary Coolidge.
4: Amity is terrific. And I had read her book on President Coolidge, which was on the bestseller list. And I contacted Amity, and I said, I'd love to talk to you about your career, about President Coolidge. So I actually had an opportunity to meet with Amity in the area where she lives and she and I spent over an hour talking about all things Coolidge and other things as well because Amity, if you know her, is quite accomplished and has a wide range of interest.
3: Now I know a lot of people are out there saying Calvin Coolidge, what did he do that he deserves literary uh, support in this part of the twenty first century? I- I-
4: Amity felt that he was certainly a forgotten president. And I think because of where he placed in his presidency, he was followed by President Hoover and then, of course, Franklin Roosevelt. And he was preceded by Warren Harding. So there was a lot about those presidents, both good and bad. And I think Amity, uh, being a real student of economics, realized in studying Calvin Coolidge, there was a wonderful story to tell about him and his economic policies, which in hindsight were quite beneficial. And, And it was really an untold story. So I think for any author, it's always interesting to find some sort of nugget that's been you know undiscovered and i think that's what she found with president Coolidge. he had really wise economic policies and there wasn't really much out about them
3: another woman you spoke to linda fairstein
4: yes linda is actually a neighborhood friend she's a very successful and practicing lawyer She'd worked in the Manhattan D.A. Sex Crimes Unit for a number of years, and after she left the practice of law, she embarked on a career as a writer, and she's become a very successful novelist. She's written probably close to 20 books now and every time she comes out with a new book it becomes a bestseller and i think the, the other thing with linda as with really all of the women in my book is how generous they are with their time in terms of mentoring and helping younger women and, and i think that's that's a great thing about linda as well
3: muriel siebert i know she's now deceased but what did you learn from muriel siebert
4: what i learned from mickey siebert who was just terrific to speak with because she's such a legend she was the first woman to have a seat uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, she knew a lot about economics. She felt very passionately about the need for younger people to understand the importance of saving, how to balance a checkbook. And aside from being this financial guru, if you will, she was also very concerned in helping children, particularly children from lower income Areas of the city to understand the importance of saving and to really get them familiar with things that they would need later on in their working lives. And Muriel had developed an entire curricula that was being adopted by some of the schools in New York to help seventh and eighth and ninth grade students understand some of the fundamentals
3: of, of economics. Okay, who else in the book would you like to bring attention to the audience?
4: Well, uh, another woman that I absolutely love talking to was Amanda Foreman. Amanda has written a number of books. Uh, I call her sort of an Anglo-American. Her mother was English. Her father was American. And she wrote a wonderful book on the Civil War from a British perspective. And Amanda does a lot of things uh, now uh, through a group called House of Speakeasy, that matches audiences with writers. So Amanda is a very passionate writer and if you look at my book you can see that a number of the women I interviewed were writers. Another woman that I'd like to mention is Dr. Anna Pavlik. Uh, Dr. Pavlik is an oncologist here in New York. She uh, She treats melanoma patients. A very close friend of mine died of melanoma and I wanted to talk to Dr. Pavlik about how to spot melanoma, how to prevent it. So that was, as I always say, a very personal interview for me. Uh, I also interviewed Celia Sands, the granddaughter of Winston Churchill. Her mother was Diana Churchill, Churchill's oldest child. And Celia spent lots of time with her grandfather. She was 21 when he died, so she remembered him quite vividly. She took trips with him as a teenager, and she shared a lot of memories of her grandfather and some of the world leaders that he interacted with. So that was really fun to speak with her. And for anyone who likes to read about Churchill, uh, talking to his granddaughter is just an added treat to understand the man, so to speak.
3: And where does she live now?
4: She lives in London. And she does tours with groups, taking them to places where Churchill painted, where he vacationed, where he met with world leaders.
3: Now, for those of you who remember, Amanda Foreman spoke at the Three West Club at the Civil War Roundtable about two years ago about her novel about some of the English people in during the Civil War who lived in the Confederacy. So it was very interesting, something different for our Civil War Roundtable listeners. And by the way, uh, Civil War Roundtable meets— each month at the Three West Club on Three West 51st Street. Do you want to say something about the club?
4: Absolutely. Uh, the Three West Club, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, is essentially the DBA of the Women's National Republican Club. It's the non political side of the house, if you will. So uh, the Women's National Republican Club is a clubhouse on Three West 51st Street. It was founded in 1921 by suffragettes. We've been in the current building since the beginning of 1934. History full circle. Mrs. Coolidge dedicated the library in the building in 1934 in memory of her husband, who had passed away a few years prior to the opening of the current clubhouse. We have author events, we have social debate parties, we have all sorts of political events. Last year, during the presidential race, we had a number of debate watch parties. We had an election watch party on election night eve, and it's a great place to interact with uh, members who have similar interests. And I might point out that we have a lot of non-Republicans who attend our events as well, because one of the things I think it's important for us is to hear all points of view and certainly to expose people to our point of view on, on various topics. So it's a really great institution. It's a great facility.
3: Now is membership open to the public? Uh,
4: membership uh, in terms of the Women's National Republican Club, you go through a, a process just as, as you would with any club. And you have to have two sponsors. And uh, as I said, you go through an interview process. So uh, most of our members are registered Republicans. To be on our board of governors, you have to be a Republican. We do have some members who are registered independents.
3: The name of the book,
4: exceptional women and their stories.
3: And where can we get it?
4: You can get it at Shakespeare Bookstore, which is located on Lexington Avenue at 69th Street, or you can get it through On Demand Books. That's www.ondemandbooks.com.
3: Robin Weaver, thank you for bringing history to life through your interviews. Good luck, and we'll see you sometime soon at the Three West Club. Okay, again, here we are. You know, day before Norwegian Day. Now, the interview was pre-recorded with the uh, Consul General to Norway, but the parade is tomorrow, you know, May 20th.
5: And they have a big old Viking ship that you can climb on. The kids love it.
3: Did a picture of our Viking ship ever make it to our Facebook page?
5: I don't know. I, I, I'm saying that because I did not put – it's it's my fault because I've been busy, and the oars have to be put in place. Um I'm going to be out of pocket for a little while. Um what if you give me what if what if we if I give a little report on what Norwegian Day was like and when I do that I'll put our our ship up. Okay. Is that okay? Now the
3: ship was designed by that great mil- military miniature uh I don't know what you would call impresario <laughs> Richard Conti. So he's, it, an it really, he's an artist. He's an artist, yeah. He's an artist. Now, you know. <laughs> He hasn't been active too long. I hope he's doing okay. We
5: hope he's okay. All
3: right. Now, next fu- few weeks, we're going to have some interesting guests. Pat Buchanan's agreed to come on our show. Uh, we got Now, next week, we have Professor David Smith from Waco, Texas, and he has a biography on about Audie Murphy. And Audie Murphy is really one of my favorite characters in history. Me too. You know, he uh, he was originally turned down, by the Marines. He had some problems even getting accepted in a combat unit in the United States Army during World War II. But at the end of the war, he was the most decorated American soldier in in World War II. After that, James Cagney took an interest in his career, paid for his acting lessons, but kind of gave up on him. James Cagney thought maybe he'd never be an actor. But then he got his break in a number of Westerns in the early 1950s, and his career took off and was Really a a successful career. He did about 50 films, most of them Westerns, and he was the star in almost all of them. And, of course, some of the most successful Westerns he did, he wasn't quite the head guy. He was behind Jimmy Stewart or Burt Lancaster.
5: My favorite, The Unforgiven, as far as his acting skills.
3: Right, and Um, I I think he dominates the screen, even when he's on the screen with Burt Lancaster and Audrey Hepburn. Maybe not Lillian Gish, but he dominates the screen. He
5: and Lillian Gish make that movie, You Want to Cry.
3: Yeah. So anyway, we're going to be talking about Audie Murphy. And, of course, next weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And, of course, keep remembering that Memorial Day is not just the beginning of the summer. It's a time to remember our honored dead. Memorial Day was established as a holiday to give thanks to the servicemen and women who gave their lives in defense of the United States. It started after the Civil War. So, you know, keep that in mind. Say a prayer for our honored dead. Of course, Audie Murphy didn't pass away in the war, but he had a tragic life after. And to some extent, you you could say he was a casualty of World War II. You know, he he died young, had a a lot of problems. Of course, today we know him as post-traumatic stress syndrome or survivor's remorse. Back then, I don't think it was as clearly diagnosed.
5: Wasn't he 17 at the beginning? Yeah, yeah.
3: And he died, you know, in 1971, so I don't know exactly how old he was. But he was a young man, died in a small plane crash. And uh, my understanding is at Arlington Cemetery, his tomb is the most visited tomb in at Arlington Cemetery. So we're going to be talking about Audie Murphy next week with David Smith. And after that, again, we got Pat Paganin. Ed Bars is going to be talking about the Battle of New Orleans one time.
5: My peeps.
3: Right. And... Another time, he's going to be talking about one of the most interesting Civil War generals of all time, fighting Tom Sweeney, because <laughs> Ed Bars told me a story, which we're going to repeat on the air uh, when we're passing Greenwood Cemetery. was in Brooklyn last. Passing Greenwood Cemetery, I mentioned to him that Tom Sweeney was buried there, and he gave me a couple of Tom Sweeney stories. So,
5: <laughs> listen, please, history lovers, if you have not been to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, you must go take their tours. It is an extraordinary, it's beautiful, but the history there is, it, you can't. it can't be beat.
3: Now, on July 1st, and I'm not sure of the time yet, but on July f- 1st, they're going to unveil a bust of General Thomas Francis Marr of the Irish Brigade. Now, Thomas Francis Barn died in 1868 as governor of Montana, and you know, when I first read about it, they said he was drunk and fell off the boat. Uh, Timothy Egan, who wrote the book, is saying that, uh, you know, Thomas Francis Marr was killed by vigilantes.
5: Maybe some nefarious people done him in.
3: Right. So, you know, we'll see. But his bust will be unveiled at Greenwood Cemetery on July 1st. I know I'm going to be there. Um, and, you know, we'll try to get out for some more information.
5: All right, listen everybody. Well speaking of Thomas care. Francis
3: Maher, David Kincaid has a lot of songs about <laughs> General Maher. So if if you want to hear more about him in song, get David's albums. Thank you for listening to Ask the lawyer. Next week, Memorial Day weekend, Audie Murphy.